before we return to the passage that we began looking at this morning, I do want to say, uh, if you do not have plans for this evening after this service and you don't have any place where you're, you're planning to be, our family invites you to come to our home tonight. It's a come and go fellowship. We would love to have you there. Our address is on the back of the program that you received tonight. We really would enjoy time with you if that fits into your plans uh, for this evening. So just know that you are, you're formally invited to come and we would love to have you. We began looking at this passage this morning, reminding ourselves of the wealth of Christmas blessing, especially in light of all the wealth that we find in American Christianity today and America as a whole, with Americans spending just under $1 trillion for gifts this Christmas and likely to exceed that figure in the next few years. Christmas is obviously a display of unfathomable wealth and you would think that that kind of display of wealth would put on to, that's put on display in America at Christmas would mean that whatever we're celebrating must be the most important event in human history and it is. I'm just not sure that what motivates that kind of spending is that event all the time. If we were to look back at the expressions of profound joy, exhilaration, and exuberant praise to God when Jesus was born on that very first Christmas, we have to wonder, what was it about the baby that elicited such joy, that elicited such praise from people when they saw a little child? Especially when we see how much we pour into this holiday especially for it to be quite empty when it's over, how could these people on that first Christmas give such praise and have such exuberance when they saw a baby? I think Christmas in America is a display of unfathomable wealth, but it was an even more extravagant display of wealth when Jesus was born. How so? Well, again, this morning we began looking at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, and the wealth of blessing that was given to us by God in Jesus. The substance of this passage is all about what it means to be in Christ. And if you were not here with us this morning, you could easily go through the passage and just underline every time you see the phrase in him or in Christ, and you'll see the substance of this passage is what does it mean to be in Christ? What was Christmas all about? It was to bring us to Christ. Here's what it means. This passage tells us what it means to be in Christ. The theme of the passage is all about the blessings that come from being in Christ. We see it in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This passage is about the blessings of being in Christ. And even the emphasis of these blessings in Christ is found here and that emphasis is on the extravagant wealth that was lavished on us, the extremes that God went to to pour out such grace on us and these blessings that come from being in Christ. That's, that's really what the passage is about. It's a profound description of the wealth of blessing that comes to us because of Christmas. And we're looking at four different blessings that come to us at Christmas, what Christmas is about, that are highlighted in this passage. 
The first one we looked at this morning is that we have been chosen. It's in verses three to six. We have been chosen. That is God before the world was created and time began chose us who are in Christ to be holy and blameless, totally acceptable to him. And he determined before anyone was even created that we would be adopted as his own children despite the reality that we would have no desire naturally in ourselves to have a relationship with him. He determined before time began that we would be his very children. In other words, we've been chosen means for us that eternal acceptance is guaranteed. You don't have to worry about acceptance with God when you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Eternal acceptance is guaranteed for those who are in Christ. Secondly, the second extravagant blessing that comes to us because of Christ is that we've been redeemed. That was in verses 7 to 10. God paid the unpayable price for us to be completely freed from the consequences of the eternal depths of our sin. And he did it in the most extravagant manner imaginable. And when he paid that price, it meant that eternal forgiveness is guaranteed because we're redeemed. Eternal acceptance is guaranteed. Eternal forgiveness is guaranteed. But that's not all that we find here. We find even two more that we want to just briefly look at and meditate on this evening. Let's consider a third blessing that comes to us because of Christmas. Third, we have been given a heritage. We've been given a heritage. Look again at verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It's not just that we have been chosen and forgiven. I want you to think about this. We have been given an eternal heritage we are heirs of an eternal inheritance that will never fade. There is nothing that will dull the value of the inheritance that we have in God. There is a legitimate debate in this passage as to whether this should read in this opening section of verse 11 that we have been made God's inheritance as if we are the inheritance that God will receive. Or does it read that we have obtained an inheritance, that we have gained an inheritance for ourselves? And either way, the end result remains the same. If we are God's inheritance, which you'll see that alluded to in verse 14, then we have him. And if we have him, we have everything in him. If it is that we have obtained an inheritance in God, then that inheritance includes all that God is. And that also is alluded to in verse 14. Either way, what is stated in these verses is utterly profound. How secure is our future inheritance in God? How sure can we be that we will have the future unfathomable inheritance in God? Well, it's so sure because notice what it says. It says in this text, we obtain that inheritance having been, there's that Presbyterian word again in a Baptist church, predestined again that's the greek term pro horizo horizo the horizon pro ahead of time the horizon the end has been marked ahead of time and what is it that has been marked the end that has been marked our inheritance 
that we don't even possess yet. God has already determined our inheritance if we're in Christ. If he's determined it, you can't lose it. He marked it out ahead of time and because he predestined our inheritance, then he's going to work out everything that has to be worked out for us to gain it. That's what this passage says. We were predestined according to the purpose, notice this, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Think about this. How sure am I that my future inheritance, that is gaining God and all that is in God, is is absolutely guaranteed? How can I be absolutely sure? This passage says he so preordained it and predetermined it, marked it out ahead of time, that he will work everything to fit according to the counsel of his will so that we obtain that inheritance. That is a profound thought. Every molecule of the universe is under his command to accomplish everything that he marked out in eternity past to accomplish so that in the end we have all of him and all that is in him is our eternal heritage. That means that there is no successful evil or injustice that can alter God's plans for us to have an eternal inheritance. God can even take the evil that happens in the world and turn it so it accomplishes his good, which is our inheritance. There's no choice that you could make, that I could make, that would alter what he has predestined. There's no course of international activity that can alter the course of history to intervene in our inheriting this earth in perfection. As Romans 8, 28 reminds us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How extravagant of a blessing is that? That your inheritance is so sure that God will work everything in the universe to the end that you will have that inheritance. An eternal inheritance is guaranteed to us. It's guaranteed. That's extravagant. What does that imply for us right now? That heavenly blessing that is ours, how should that impact us right now? Well, as we've been seeing, we've seen that there's a blessing described in the first three chapters and there's an implication to that blessing found in the last three chapters. Well, how is this eternal inheritance, this eternal heritage that's been given to us, how does it impact us in the here and now? We'll turn over to chapter five in Ephesians for a moment. And look at verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What is that? Well, who who are we? We're his adopted children. So what should we do? Imitate God and walk in love just as Christ also has loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks because this you know, and watch this language carefully, this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has what? 
an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Because it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. What is he saying here? The dark world system, its lifestyle, its jokes, its morality, they do not define those of us who have an inheritance yet to come. The world loves to celebrate an inheritance And the inheritance that the world celebrates is always one that fades. It's always one that fades. The believer says we know that we belong to an eternal realm. We belong to an eternal life with God. So we do not identify ourselves with the inheritance that this world clings to. Not their system, not their morality, not anything that defines this world system because we're defined by a different inheritance. Those who live for the present world will not have an inheritance with God. But he's preordained, predestined that we would inherit him forever. Therefore, we don't identify ourselves with the morality of this world. It's clear. It's one thing to enjoy the world that God has given us. And I think you should enjoy all the things that God has given us. It's quite another thing to be defined by the world. We're not defined by the world. We're not even defined by our enjoyment of the world. We're defined by a future inheritance that's coming to us. If we lose everything now, we still have the world given to us. That's what God promises. That's what was accomplished at Christmas. And you understand that when those people who saw that infant in the manger, they understood this is the one that brings us eternal inheritance. That's an unfathomable wealth of blessing that comes through Christmas. Let's finish by looking at the fourth blessing that comes to us because of Christmas. It's very simple. We have been sealed We have been sealed. It's found in verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. It's actually rather simple to see this. When you heard the message of salvation in Jesus all that he did to redeem you from your sin, and you believed in him genuinely, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a promise from God to us. Now, what does that mean that he is a seal? Well, don't think Ziploc seal. Don't think a seal, a gasket seal on your fuel pump. That's not what it's referring to. A seal that's referred to here is like the gold embossed emblem you might find on a diploma. 
or the wax insignia that had the imprint of the ancient emperor signifying that the contents of the scroll belonged to the emperor. They possessed his authority. They were his words. It was genuinely from him. It's the mark that says this has his authority, his ownership, and his authenticity. And what is the mark? What is the seal? What is the sign that you received when you heard the gospel and you embraced it in saving belief? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of promise. God gives you the indwelling spirit who instills his word in us, controls us through that word so that we constantly have the very life of God pulsating in us as imperfect as we are the life of God is in every single believer this is different than the old testament yes the holy spirit did assist and dwell with people in the old testament but not every single person in old testament Israel and the covenant people of God had the constant never leaving constant presence of the Holy Spirit in every life. No, that's only true of what we call the new covenant community. All those in Christ continually have the indwelling spirit in them, the very life of God in them, and that is a sign of God's promise to you. What is it a sign of? It's a pledge. It's a down payment, as it were, of our inheritance. Isn't that fascinating? He gave you the Holy Spirit as imperfect as we are right now. He gave you the Holy Spirit and he said, this is a down payment. A down payment means what? It means I'm still in debt. That's what it means, right? No, no, it means there's more to come. There's more to come. This says the fullness is yet to come. And here's a little taste. That little taste is the very life of God in you. It's a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That means the full redemption, the full salvation that comes when the whole heaven and earth are remade and we are his people and we dwell with him forever in a perfect earth. He sealed us. What does that mean? Eternal hope is guaranteed. Eternal hope is guaranteed. You don't have to live hopelessly. Well, now I, I get it that you will live a hopeless life and you'll constantly be frustrated if your hope is in the inheritance of this world. Because it's fading, it will never satisfy you, there's never enough, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul and then what do you have? No, when you possess the spirits, the sign of eternal hope guaranteed to you. What does that imply? Well, again, you can look over in chapter five and notice verse 18, <clears throat> if we have this heavenly blessing, what is the practical real world present implication for that? Verse 18 of chapter five, do not get drunk with wine because that is dissipation. Instead, what does he say? Be filled with the spirit, be controlled by the spirit whom God has given you as an inheritance. Whom God has given you as a pledge, a sign that says you have it all. Be controlled by the spirit. How are you going to know that you're controlled by the Spirit? Well, you see the results of it in verse 19. You're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. People filled with the Spirit sing. They sing the praises of God. They sing to each other, causing each other to be lifted up. They sing to the Lord. They sing because there's a melody of praise in their heart. 
It's what happened to Mary when she heard that she would bear the, the sovereign Lord. It's happened to Zacharias and Elizabeth. They burst forth in, in praise. The angels came out of the heavens and they were giving this kind of praise to God. When you're full of the Spirit, you give praise. Another result of being full of the Spirit is you're always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord. That's verse 20. This means you're a grateful person. It, it doesn't matter what comes on you because you belong to God. And so you can be thankful in every circumstance and situation. Verse 21 is another result of being controlled by the Spirit. You'll be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You'll, you'll actually submit to one another. And what does that look like? Well, from verse 22 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, it describes what that kind of submission looks like because that submission is the reversal of the curse that was placed on us in Genesis chapter 3. And everything you read here is the absolute opposite of what happens to us in the curse. Wives submit to your husbands instead of trying to rule them, as Genesis 3 said. Husbands will actually love their wives rather than trying to crush them, as Genesis 3 says. Children who are supposed to bear the image of God will follow their parents and parents will actually instill in their children the wisdom of God. That's what happens when the spirit controls you and you have that spirit and when you have that spirit, you overcome the curse, you display the gospel, you show the control of the word of God and that's the sign that you are in Christ. Think about this. What a wealth of blessing comes to us through Christ who came to us at Christmas. Eternal acceptance is guaranteed because we've been chosen by the Father. Eternal forgiveness is guaranteed because we've been redeemed by the Son. Eternal inheritance is guaranteed because we've been given a heritage by God. Eternal hope is guaranteed because we have been sealed by the Spirit. That's what we get. It's who we are when we are in Christ. It's the wealth of Christmas blessing. Far exceeds anything we could ever imagine having in this life, in this world. Do you now see why the Magi worshipped an infant? Because they knew what he was bringing. Do you see why angels descended and worshipped at the announcement of the birth of Jesus? Do you understand why Joseph and Mary were so full of praise when they saw the Son of God in their arms? Do you know why the shepherds glorified God when they saw the baby Jesus in a feeding trough? They did that because they knew the wealth, the extravagant wealth of God that comes through him. They gave praise. Did you notice back in Ephesians 1 the intended result, purpose, result, for every spiritual blessing that was given. It's repeated three times. Why did God choose and predestine us? Verse six of Ephesians one. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did Jesus redeem us through his blood and why does God govern all things in the universe to guarantee our, our eternal inheritance? Verse 12, at the end of it. So that we who were the first to open Christ would be, what? To the praise of his glory. And why did the Spirit seal us with God's sign of authority and authenticity and ownership? Verse 14. See it at the end of the verse. To the praise of his glory. Three times. The extravagant wealth of Christmas blessing should lead us to worship Christ. If there's any other ultimate end and intention and aim in your Christmas celebration, 
other than the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. It falls short of what God displayed in extravagant wealth for you. You're missing it. When you catch hold of all that God has done for you in Christ, it should elicit the deepest, most profound, grateful, humbling, exuberant praise in your heart for God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. The trillion dollars spent at Christmas. To display that kind of unfathomable wealth and be left ultimately dissatisfied, how pointless, how fruitless. But when you consider the display of this kind of wealth that comes through the blessing of Christmas, there's satisfaction, there's praise, there's joy. Christ is the end of all things. Our greatest desire for you is that that kind of praise for Christ is what you experience because you know what Christmas is about. Pray with me. Father, as we begin to draw our time to a conclusion, we want to think again. We want to think again on what you have done for us. You have chosen us. You have redeemed us. You've given us an inheritance. You've given us hope. And you've done that in the most exuberant and extravagant ways. As we think on this Christmas, would you remind us of the wealth of blessing that comes in it through Christ? And would you challenge us? Do we know him? Are we in him? Do we love him with all of our heart? Have we come to the place where we've seen the value of Christ being so far greater than the value of our own selves? May you demonstrate now how valuable Christ is by transforming human hearts that have been estranged at enmity with you. Draw people to yourself who once were your enemies and make them your very children and show them the wealth that comes to them through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.